I'm still on the booth with Collective Endeavour, and uh, with me, Gregor Hutton, uh, author of Best Friends, and clutching a slim green volume in his hand. Good morning. Uh, what's brought you here, and, uh, and what are you foisting on an unsuspecting world? Um, well, I'm down here at Games Expo with uh, a new book called Solipsist, which is a game about uh, changing reality, and it's uh, bright green. It, it's very green, I've got to say. I mean, for, for all the Best Friends had, had pink oozing from its very pores, this one, this is very striking green. Uh, so this is Box Ninja, which uh, I think is your yes. uh, imprint, is it? But th- you're not the designer of Solipsists. No. So how's that come about? Um, well, David's a friend that lives around the corner, and he said, quote unquote, and I hope you're listening to this, David, the world does need another publishing imprint. So we went back and forth, and I said, you know, you really should publish this game, um, because I really believed in it as an idea. And so, uh, yeah, we eventually came to an accommodation where I'm publishing it for him. But I now understand he is going to create another publishing imprint himself at some point in the future with uh-huh. his other ideas. So I, I see that as a bit of a success for myself. So a success for yourself, or do you feel you've kind of been talked into something that you're thinking, well, really, I've just, just been conned into this. <laughs> <laughs> you put out the thing and see if it's any good, and if uh, it can deny all knowledge if everybody turns around and says, I don't like this box ninja stuff. Well, the interesting thing uh, that I've done with this is it is still creator-owned. Mm-hmm. So David pays for you know the book. And um, he had sole ownership of everything that went in this book. But, you know, I like to feel that he listened to my wise words of advice about, you know, what should be in there. So you're, you're, a, you're sort of a mentor now, the, the grand old man of indie games, passing on your knowledge to the, the young Padme. Yeah, I'm kind of like a Gandalf to maybe someone like Malcolm Craig's Frodo. Yes, yes. Um, I'm going to step aside from that, uh, that comment since I... Um, <laughs> I'm going to get into anything about Malcolm Craig and Frodo. Right, so, Solipsist, fair enough. Obviously, uh, not, not a game uh, for, for podcasting by people with a, a severe speech impediment, but it's, yes. it's a game about changing reality. Yep. Um, what really means that we, we need a, a sort of a story game about this? Can't we just have a game where you roll on a, like, Lords of Creation, something like that, where you used to change realities? It was very D&D style. What does this bring to it? Well, the interesting thing is it came from a 24-minute RPG writing competition at a convention about uh, two and a half years 24 ago. Minutes, 24 minutes. 24 minutes. That's really ramping it up from the 24-hour Yeah, uh, John, John Wilson of Contested Ground Studios doesn't have the patience for 24 hours. So he had uh, a game writing competition in 24 minutes. And uh, the kernel of the idea is down, but you can't do anything like a finished game mm-hmm. or even an alpha, but you get an idea down. And David then developed it over the following year. And then for about a year, we've had it in playtesting as Nash can. And the interesting thing is that in a lot of games, they have the usual stats and skills, and you can change reality if the GM lets you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Solipsist, it's really all up front. You know, the GM says, look, here is the difficulty. You know, he has the veto to say yes or no openly about what's in the scene. And you can change reality, and the rules say, well, if you bring these obsessions in, reality now forever changes to your perception, a tinged perception of reality and you have changed it, and the GM has to live with that because you have permission to do it. Now, for people who um, aren't so involved in things like the story games community, and it very much does seem to be a community, or perhaps series yeah. of communities, um, a term like Ashcan might not be so familiar. So what do you mean by you've had it in playtest as an Ashcan? Um, well, David has gone through ten iterations of writing the book, and so I think it was maybe version three was printed up, um, put a s- slick green cover on it, and it was handed about for people to say, here's the game, take it away and play test it and get back to us, or do you have any comments on it? Mm-hmm. And so we didn't sell it as an Ashcan, but it was in a pre-production version 
Um, so it's a, sort of a, a limited release to get public feedback yeah. um, to, to make sure that you don't put out a game that you then say, and here are the four pages of Errata yes, based on exactly. the fact that people have now played it and it doesn't work. And then um, we got some really great uh, worldwide feedback. I mean, Mike Holmes um, wrote, I think, more words of commentary on it than David had written in the game itself at that stage. Um, but, you know, that stuff's really great, that people will actually do that in the community and help you with your book and... There's not a fear of, oh, I've given away the family jewels by showing my game to someone else before it's published. There's a lot of kind of, um, I suppose you call them traditional role-playing mm. publishers, which sounds a bit odd considering the hobby's only sort of 30 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not like there are that many real big businesses with multiple members of staff doing it as their own job. So yeah. you've got sort of a, um, a slight background of people trying to keep things close to the chest. And yet there has always been a bit of um, feeding between companies, things like Flying Buffalo and Hero Games. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. publish a supplement and say, oh, and we've got stats for other people's games yes. on it. And it was very much a kind of at-the-bar, handshake mm. kind of agreement. It's almost, is it more formalised with the indie games people that you're here because you want to work together and you are going to share, or is it just kind of developed because you're friends and play each other's games? Um, well, I mean, for big companies, they still do a lot of playtesting. You know, you look at Dark Heresy, it has a monstrous list of playtesting credits, same for WFRP. Um, Doctor Who has had sort of really quite visible playtesting. And um, for indie games, someone can comment on your game that will not buy or like your game. I think people are willing to say, I don't, I wouldn't play that myself or I wouldn't buy it, but I can see your design goals and I'm going to comment on them. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of fostered community which takes us probably back to the 70s and early 80s um, when you know, the hobby was really cross pollinated, like you say, with the early days of Flying Buffalo and you know, Steve Jackson games. You know, everyone was, knew everyone and they were all sort of um, sharing ideas amongst themselves, I think. Do you think that's perhaps because back then there wasn't so much riding on it in terms of money? You've got lots of young, enthusiastic people loving the hobby, lots of ideas. Then you reach that stage where actually people are starting to make money. It, there's cartoons tied in with it. We've got franchises. Yeah. Does that take it away and the indie community is perhaps the second coming of the first wave in a way? Yeah, well, I think that, that um, the hobbyists have always liked playing games. I mean, that's why we do it. That's why we write games. That's why we play games. When your company gets so big, you have to have an HR department obviously things change mm-hmm. and you have to have a legal department and they say well you might have a handshake at the bar agreement but really there's too much riding on it so yeah I think if you're a big company you're foolish to you can no longer afford to be having someone yeah, turning th- around and suing you and saying well actually you've stolen my manuscript my idea whatever yeah and, and you know I think you have to just be honest about it that's the way it is so, it, I mean, sorry, games. What they founded on sort of trust and generosity. You think there's there's much more of that around? Uh, yeah, I think I think hobby. so. I mean, I have had to sign non-disclosure agreements for indie games. Right. Um, you know, for some stuff, they do it. And it's it's not rude. You know, I think it's, you understand it's something that has to be done. And for other people, like for me and David, I mean, he was round the corner. And we had a, a very. So you're not scouring the world for new talent. You're literally looking around the corner. Um, well, for David, he was round the corner. Um, for other people, you know, the internet means that. I mean, my ga- one of my games was translated into Polish a couple of months ago. They dropped me an email and said, "Can we do it?" And I said, "Well, yeah, sure thing. On you go." However, I'll have to read the manuscript to make sure that it's all in and, and, and they sent it back to me. And um, uh, Ian McAllister asked me the other night. He said, "Did they make any of the changes you recommended?" And I just looked at him. Well, how do I know? You've it's not considered running through Babelfish and seeing what happens to it then when it translates back into English. Well, fortunately, um, living in Edinburgh, I can just ask four of my uh, five neighbours who are Polish. Fair enough. <laughs> 
Now, one thing with the game, you said this is about just bringing back to Solstice. Yep. Uh, this is about changing reality, yes. and so the players have got a lot of control. Over yes. Things. That's also uh, something that comes up a lot, not just in indie games, but in, in the fact that things are creator-owned and people are really taking control of stuff. Yeah. So you've, you've always got a game that's, um, that's kind of represented the whole thing, the whole ethos. Of yeah, I have a vision game. of indie games everywhere. And you know, you know, I've got all these obsessions that drag people towards producing their own indie games and making their own imprint. And I'm actually the only man I've seen in the entire convention, possibly at any convention, who seems to be coordinating his shirts according to the products he's selling. Yesterday, I couldn't help noticing I had a, a, pink a, shirt. a pink shirt with uh, with best friends. It's the green shirt with. It's solipsis. a green shirt today for solipsis. You know, it's Does all branding. In the future, you're going to have to go to longer and longer conventions as you get more products out, and you have to change your shirt more. Well, you know, um, Gen Con US is four days, and you know, absolutely. Um, you know, ultimately, I think I could wear a different shirt every day there. That, that would, for some people, be quite a novelty at Gen Con. Having, having been there, the idea of changing shirt for one day is... It's, it's, it's brand new to many of the people. I, I, I think you're bringing something quite literally fresh to uh, role-playing. You know, I, I would make um, pink and green branded soap, but I don't think it would sell so well. Well, they did have um, soaps with D20s in them last year on uh, uh, Leisure Games. So of course they're on and the, the D4 here the con, on the they can still use them. <laughs> well, perhaps we should have showers on the point. Yeah. Actually, I mean, this is quite a, a sort of a friendly convention in yes. terms of it's got a much greater mix of people. It's so a really great for families. You haven't got that sort of um, stereotyped, smelly, anti-social no. game, have you? No. Um, UK Games Expo is a fantastic con. Um, they've got um, families here. You know, there's a really eclectic mix of war gamers, card gamers, larpers, role players, and just hobbyists. You know, people that like all of the hobby, and I think that's a really healthy thing because um, you know. I used to play um, Napoleonic stuff, DBA, um, Warhammer, mm-hmm. you know, 40k. We role played a lot. We, you know, we didn't see things as a blind barrier of well, I'm doing this game and nothing else. And I think it's really interesting. We've had families come past where the dad's looking at one thing, the mum's you know looking at something else, and the kids you know are looking at something else again, which I think is fantastic because they'll all go home and they'll play these sort of games together. Now, with um, the sort of games that you've got, traditional role players in the call there have looked a little bit askance at indie games and seen them as something quite uh, quite peculiar. And that's obviously, as time goes on, breaking mm. down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. But there were something new and weird. If you've got families coming through who really don't know one role playing game from another, are mm. you finding that they've simply got no prejudices? They're looking and thinking, oh, that's that D and D stuff, or are they very open to it? Yeah, they're very open. We had a family come along. The kids were into wrestling. Right. And, you know, so the dad was a role player and he looked at power drivers and power bombs. And, you know, obviously the mum and dad have to go with the kids to all these wrestling events to accompany them. So they've got a knowledge of all these things. But, you know, they're not so old and foggyish that they don't enjoy a good fun game. And, I could, you know, they took a copy of it away and I think they'll have a really great time playing it together. So you're not having a problem explaining to people that although this looks like a, either a pamphlet or a small paperback, but this is actually a game yeah. because it doesn't come in a box and it doesn't have the dice with it in pieces. They're accepting that, that this is something you can play with. Yeah, yeah I think I think so. I mean, the people that come here um, either know what you've got or they're very open to you know having it explained. And you know, a lot of the time they say, oh, "Well, you're here for one thing or the other," and that's fine, you know, because when I go about the convention, there's lots of things here that. You know, I'm not going to pick up. 
yeah. and that's perfectly fine. You know? But you're finding that uh, the whole collective endeavour idea of lots of people with lots of games helping each other out in different yeah. areas, is that making people stop and linger at the site a bit more because you say, oh, here's a sort of dystopian future science fiction game and, oh, here's one about wrestling. Whereas if you were a sole publisher, yeah. you perhaps wouldn't have that spread well, and I think wouldn't you get such a wide audience. Yeah, I think if you're on your own, it's kind of... It's a bit strange to do that way because we've got so much crossover. And the fact is we're all able to demo each other's games. I'm able to pitch every game in the booth. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got things in the booth, like B-Movie, which is an excellent pick-up card game. It's really short, quick to play. We've got um, Play Unsafe, which is a great book about using improv and role-play. And that's for and GMs so and players. Graham Walsley. Graham Walsley. And it's just GM tips, and it's, that's applicable to anyone, a trad gamer or a quote-unquote indie gamer. And I mean, David that wrote Solipsist as a hardcore GURPS gamer, you know, he's really, he loves um, the detail. And when he wrote Solipsist, he wasn't sure if it was a game for him. And he now finds that he plays it all the time by email with his wife when they're at work in the lunch hour because um, it's a game that's really open to that. So he found that he's, he's had to move outside of the sort of mechanics and things that he likes and is familiar with to do an idea that he had? Or, yeah, well, or was well, he just trying something different, do you think? Um, yeah, well, for, um, for some things, he, he writes a really great setting and he runs it with his gaming group using GURPS Mm -hmm. and they just want, you know, they all know the GURPS rules, they play it all the time and as the GM, he's a sort of arbiter and he's got the custodian of all the rules and they're just wanting to live in the setting and then um, I guess when he came to do this game is this a setting for GURPS? And of course it's such a big thing, you can change the world on a whim that, well, it's not a setting so you have to have some rules to really cover that Um, and we had a really tremendously bad playtest where David came along with a scenario all written out like for GURPS where we'd have our first scene then our second scene then we'd meet the big bad guy then we'd have and it you know died so ignominiously it was excellent because David (laughs) you know David really said right actually I need to I need to look at this from a different way and one of his GURPS players had said yeah your game was really great and David said oh you know it was terrible and he said no no your scenario was terrible you tried to force this scenario on us that we didn't want but yeah, the rules really support the fact that I wanted to change the world to my view. Um, a bit of megalomania, I think, uh, can, can yeah. get people to really come out of the shell. Can't they? And you know, and David, you know, takes the game very seriously. He said, you know, straight from the off, he wanted a bright green cover, and he's trying to find out how much to carbon offset the book so he can truly be the greenest game in the hobby. So were you desperately looking through uh, through your wardrobe and realizing, my God, I've got to buy a new shirt to do this? Game? I had to go all the way to Germany to get this shirt. Really. You know. Um, it's very tough to get a shirt to match the colour of the book. Is for, for normal channels? I, I, I smuggled it in, you know, and I thought if I go through the green channel, they can't complain, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you're just conforming to what it says on the, uh, yeah. on the label. Well, with, like you mentioned, GURPS. Yeah. There's a, a, a tendency, I think, you, you read on forums, there's lots of people who come up and say, I've seen the light. I've sort of come out, I used to be a traditional gamer, yeah. and now I'm into story game. And it's... Um, it's something that you're now seeing a little bit of people tipping over the edge and saying, oh, actually, I can still play those old games. Whereas with a lot of the folks who seem to write story games, they don't see that distinction quite so much. Do you, I mean, do you yourself find, actually, I can play any sort of games, but some things suit things better? Or do you have fairly strong preferences? Well, uh, for me, um, I mean, I found that when I was young, I would invest lots of time and effort into learning complicated systems and all these things. And for me, I find... If something's too thick a book, that's my main barrier for the big mainstream games. But then there are big indie games that are really thick, and I could never plow through them. Much as, you know, if someone else read them and ran the game, I'd love to play it. But um, you know, my my time is so precious to me that I don't have the time to invest in these games. 
or maybe invest in playing them. They say this, this game gives you great rewards, like burning empires, if you put the time in. I said, well, I don't have the time or the sort of mental effort to put in. Yeah, well, that, that particular one, it's not just, it's a fairly thick book, and it is yeah. a, it's a gorgeous book. I was saying, it's also designed to play in a certain format yes. over a certain length of time, yeah. which is the sort of thing that I think we've seen more in, in indie games than in traditional ones, yeah. where it was all very open ended usually. Yes. Uh, people are focusing on a, on a certain. But, but I think there's an expectation in a, a trad game, the ones I used to play, um, there's an expectation that when the GM said, I'm running my campaign on Tuesday night, that he was I mean if he stopped that game after four or five sessions you know you're not going to go and play a campaign with him again he was promising you a couple of years of yeah I've spent three hours rolling up this character and you've only given me a couple of weeks entertainment yeah and so you know I think the other thing is the players want to bring things in and we all want to be in charge of our characters in those kind of games and you know I think it was quite normal for me a gaming club I used to go to near Glasgow where Sundays were wargaming from ten till four and then we had Tuesdays were campaign nights from uh, you know seven to ten, and Thursdays were one-off games. And we used to run it like a theatre program. We had four-week sessions, and the idea was that we had so many books on our shelves we never played that you could run them for four weeks, and then it'd be the next block of four-week games. And it allowed people to practice GMing or just to GM or to try a game they hadn't tried. Because on Tuesdays we're all locked into these year-long, couple-year-long campaigns. And people said, well, you know, I want to run a campaign now. Well, you can't do that because everyone's locked down to you know, someone's campaign. We haven't sort of got a, a space because one of the old members has died off. Yes. Yeah. It's like getting into, into Yeah, you have to poison people just to start your D&D campaign. It's shocking. Well, I think live roleplay needs to take that next step. Uh, yeah. The killer, it was all about uh, plastic tarantulas. And, and I think it needs that's to really, just, that's really not move on. Yeah. I mean, come on, Steve Jackson, what were you thinking? I'd probably influenced by the fact that maybe, you know, homicide is, is actually a crime. Um... <laughs> So it's a very, very, very straight jacket. I don't agree with that rule. I want to homebrew it. I want to house rule that out. Well, this yeah. is all about being sort of uh, loving in hippie games. We're not talking murder. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's something like um, Solipsis. If you uh, if you say, I want to run this yeah. as a traditional campaign-style game, yeah. is it set up for that? Does it have a particular um, Absolutely, because the fantastic thing, I think, about Solipsis, and I can say it because I didn't write it, you know, and I, you know, I edited it and David wrote the thing, is that he finds it's like collaborative world creation because... You don't have to be all tree-huggy and say, oh, I'm agreeing with you. You say, no, damn it, I have this vision of the world for my character and I will twist the world to suit my vision. So you're changing through play as well as yeah, uh, coming so, up with something in advance and, collectively. You know, if your character wishes to have giant flying snails in the world or sparkling pigeons, over time they will become part of the world. Have you actually done that? Those um, two particular examples? Those two examples are in the book, actually. And as David said, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of bare-chested firemen coming around the corner followed by... Um, Giant flying snails, and, and actually, thank and that was just to open the door. Thank you for um, for realising that this is actually an audio medium because uh, chatting people who do graphic design and so on uh, mm. and holding a tape recorder, uh, very often it's difficult to get through to them that nobody else can see this. But yes, indeed, that is a, a quite a well done cartoon. Yeah, it's a giant flying snail, it's and um, there's also giant. Uh, yeah, that was done by uh, Frida van Riefels, who's in Belgium, and um, she's a sort of comic artist, and. Um, David knows her through his wife and so he said could you do me a drawing of some bare chested fireman careering around the corner on a fire truck um, with some giant flying snails being and towed behind she said actually I've already got and one she of those how, in the filing cabinet well she said how many snails you know <laughs> that's a professional that's a true professional <laughs> so how many people is this aimed to, to do and do you need any, any peculiar dice is it sort of you need fudge dice or you need 200 poker chips um, or anything it's completely diceless and you need 
at least one player and one GM. And David found that it's an odd game for an odd number of people. It works best to say one person or three or four or, four or five. Because if you have two, sometimes it's, well, my vision, no, it's my vision. Um, but when you have um, three players, well, there has to be some accommodation of everyone else's bizarre vision of the world. And uh, in play, when you use your obsessions, they get more powerful, they get cruder, and you just, you know, they make large changes to the world. And you have these limitations which hold you back. And again, by using them, they get a lot more powerful and so over between stories you ground your character and try and temper his obsessions and temper his limitations or add some limitations because if you really let your character go wild you would change reality so much so you would tear yourself out of the agreed reality of the group players and yeah sure you're now in your perfect world where you're the only one that exists you're truly solipsistic no one else exists and back in the quote unquote game world your character's still there but he's no longer a player character. He's what we remember of you. And, you know, it's only our familiarity with you that you're still there as a person. And if we forget about you, they disappear. Interesting idea. So that's uh, very esoteric, I think. And David was really inspired by a... I guess back in the day it was a traditional game, but really you would think it was an indie game. It was Heretics by Wasteland Games that were Northern Ireland. They did Stocks Wasteland and Stocks Lines. Yeah, Stocks Lines, El Paso. Uh, I've got Her- Heretics. Um, but yeah, so Heretics was the same Tumble, sort of... I think it was. Yeah, and Heretics was the same sort of idea where maybe you were mad people in an asylum dreaming up these worlds. Really freaky blue cover it had. Yeah, and um, it was that... And I think, you know, with Mage and with Mortal Coil by Brennan Taylor, which is another indie yeah. game... And which is collective uh, world design in its yeah. uh, initial stage, but it's, things have changed as no, it goes along. It, yeah. you create the collective world, and then you role-play fairly normally in it, where um, in Solipsist, if you do... I mean, yesterday in the game I ran, they decided that because trains had to run in time, that it was much better if we removed all people from train stations and there'd be robots that would run it and it would be very clean, litter-free. And I said, well, how many train stations? He said, all of them. I said, yeah, okay, right. Well, uh, let's see what obsessions you have, what limitations will hold you back. You fear the machine. But he overcame that and sure enough, um, suddenly British Rail and whatever was running on time. So... And that's a powerful change of reality. It is. The tragic thing is that in 1976 it happened in my hometown where buses were put, just totally go off of the town. Yeah. Buses had stopped picking up passengers on certain routes. Yeah. And the spokesman for the company said it would actually throw out the timetable if they had to keep stopping all the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't believe he stayed with the company terribly long. No. I mean, the interesting thing was I thought, you know, you can change reality to have robots in your... Um, every train station around around time or somebody else might have an obsession of being pan-European says actually we're not in Britain we're in Germany they all run time anyway you know and say oh right the game is actually now in Germany fine fantastic um, you know and that's how it works so you've surely got to have some um, suge- quite strong suggestions and guidelines to people that take it beyond just saying okay you can do what you want uh, how do you get a footing into something so where do we start with a game like well, this and, and, and do you think new players are, are more open to it and less constrained than perhaps well the thing people? is the GM is told you know start if you can't think of anywhere good to start start where you are right now your hometown right now the world is much like it is everyone's got their characters and we'll find the world that we can all coexist in through play and the GM is told not to hold on to any things himself. You know, you don't have a conception of how reality will be. But the GM is given... Uh, there's a force called the Shadow, which is anathema to the solipsists. And the, the GM has a number of tokens, and he can use these to say, no, reality can't change, because the Shadow doesn't want it to change. 
or the shadow is corrupting reality. The players aren't getting it all their own way. No, and um, the shadow has like threads left behind. So like the videotape in the ring, everyone watched the videotape to die. And the players say, well, I changed reality so this tape doesn't exist. No, it does, because I've invested shadow tokens in it. You have to defeat the shadow, which isn't easy, and I have a large pool of shadow tokens to last the scenario, and you can see them sitting there on the table. And so the players have to work through resolving threads and coexisting with each other or disagreeing with each other. And all the time, if they have their stories going on, there's these tokens sitting here. And when you um, get rid of them by defeating the shadow, we ha- I have to remove some tokens. We say, right, the scenario's over. Everyone can ground. We'll start another scenario and I'll bang some more tokens down the table. Right. And I- I'm just going to riff off whatever you're doing in the game and think, oh, um, someone strangled their father in the game yesterday. So I said, oh yeah, I'm going to put some shadow tokens in him. And he came back looking for his murderous daughter. And uh, one of our players didn't know her name and said, well, you know, I, don't know who, I don't know who parent your murderous daughter is. Please go away. And he was like, no, I'm not going away. You know? So it's not all sparkly pigeons and flying snails then. It's, um, it's touching on some darker subjects. Well, yeah, but um, the character that murdered her father, um, when she had to go and identify the body in the morgue, they said, we're only letting next of kin in. They said, oh, but I'm married to this other player character. And they went, oh, right, okay. And then they went, and they went, well, what about me? You've left me outside. She said, oh, okay, actually, I'm married to that one. And, you know, the wedding rings appear on his finger. <laughs> um, and that was her way of getting around. And it was really strange. You're marrying people at the drop of a hat to get around some procedures at the morgue. And it's not just a bluff check. You're actually suddenly married. Yes, she's suddenly married. And he was like, great, because I want women to love me. She said, oh, I don't love you. And he wanted to change reality so all women loved him so that it was a marriage not a convenience but of genuine emotion. Is this actually a game or is this a way of learning more about people you uh, game with, do you think? Well, you know, he does um, quote Douglas Hofstadter and his references, you know, the mind's eye and all this stuff. So I think very few games can say that. Yeah. So just to, to wrap things up, where is the uh, the collective heading then? Do you see you were here last year? Yeah, we were here last on? year. We had really positive meeting um, about where we're going forward and people should look forward to seeing us um, definitely at Dragon Meet the end of the year um, IndieCon will be there Concrete Cows Furnaces um, I don't know what we'll be doing at Gen Con UK um, but I noticed that um, Gen Con UK want us there whether we're just running games might be a possibility right. but you know we're here to stay and if people have got game ideas and they want to engage with the community and say you know I've got an idea can you help me with it and hey I've, re- I've played your game or read your game and I've got some feedback on it you know, we're completely open to that and yep. uh, for people who want to find out more about Solipsist, uh, yep. where is the best place to look? Um, you can go to boxninja.com or solipsist-rpg.com. For those with more advanced spelling. For, for those for those that have got advanced spelling, um, you can go there and it's um, you know, £10 and it's bright green and you can find it in all sorts of shops and IPR, Indie Press Revolution. And, and simply by using that as a, a sort of a swatch card, people will be able to catch you in the street uh, by matching it to the shirt. Yes, it's so, a yeah. bonus. For sure. (laughs) Great, thank you very much indeed for your time, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Cheers, thanks very much.